If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Daniel chapter 5. It'll be on page 879 if you're using the Pew Bible. We'll continue our series on how to live this godly life in this godly culture. It's hard, it's difficult, it's not easy. A lot of times we feel like as Christians we're fighting uh, upstream. We're always having to run uphill. It's never easy. We're always being pushed and... It's always a struggle and it's always a hardship. And yet God is with us, giving us His grace, His mercy, His kindness with each and every step. And so we're thankful for that. So this morning we'll look at Daniel chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 1 through 31. And so read along with me. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word, our only rule for faith and practice. Scripture reads, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. And then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then... The king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. And the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And then all of the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. The king Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall. And the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king made him chief of the magicians and enchanters and Chaldeans and astrologers because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation." And then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, 
You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and the light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have all been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show me the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you will be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And then... Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself, and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that He gave Him, all peoples and nations and languages trembled and feared before Him. Whom He would, He killed. And whom He would, He kept alive. Whom He would, He raised up. And whom He would, He humbled. But when alive, or excuse me, but when His heart was lifted up and His spirit was hardened so that He dealt proudly He was brought down from His kingly throne, and His glory was taken from Him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and His mind was made like that of a beast, and His dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and His body was wet with the dew of heaven, until He knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom He will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of this house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear, or know, but the God in whose hands is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from His presence the hand was sent, and this writing is inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, many, many, Tekel and Parson. That is this interpretation of the matter. Many. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Wade, 
measured and found wanting. I don't know about you, but that's not, uh, you think about what you want on your epitaph, right? On your tombstone, you know? That's not something I want on my tombstone, right? Weighed, measured, and found wanting. So we're going to talk about pride. We're going to talk about humility. But before we do that, we're going to take a little break. Kind of let that, uh, that story sink in as we think about some funny stories. We're coming together at the end of the week. How was your week? Did you have a good week? Did you think about pride? Did you think about humility? What was your week like? How do you feel uh, today on Sunday? This is a little slide I thought was funny. Daily job moods at work. Monday, you ever feel that way on Monday? Tuesday, I love the Wednesday. I think Wednesday's my favorite. It's got, it's, this has got to be over, right? Please tell me this is coming to an end. Thursday, Friday is the one I relate to the most. I think I feel like Friday most every day. Saturday, anybody feel that way yesterday? I love that look. Saturday's a good day, isn't it? For most of us. Sometimes we've got to work on the weekend. Sunday, is that how you feel this morning? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know about you, I kind of feel more like Friday, but it's because of the weekend. Usually on Sundays I feel, yeah, the Lord's Day. We get to rest, relax, uh, but what's coming Sunday night, right? It's not far behind, here it comes. I feel that creeping in already, I don't know about you, it's already coming. Got a long day today, we're going to go grab lunch, come back, help with Awanas. Before you know it, it's going to be Sunday night, and we're going to be looking about like that. We work hard, don't we? Sometimes we do a little overtime. What's the next slide? While taking the interview, the employer asked the candidate, here's the employer, how long did you work during your last job? The candidate replies, 30 years. Employer, what's your age? Candidate, 20 years. All right, anybody, anybody sense anything funny up to this point? The employer was surprised and asked the candidate, how is it that you're 20 years old and yet you have 30 years of experience? His answer was simple, overtime. Anybody feel that way? Anybody pulling some overtime? I've been working five years, but it seems like ten, right? Because I'm doing two or three jobs all at the same time. What about this next slide? I like this little joke. A little joke for you. What's the difference between a piano, a tuna, and a pot of glue? I don't know. You can tune a piano, but you can't piano a tuna. Ha, 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 What about the glue? I knew you'd get stuck there. Little joke, little joke. You can use this next week. You, can use it. you don't have to tell it. The chaplain gave it to you. Next slide. Boy, our principal is so stupid. All right, anybody at Lake and Heath or elementary school, don't do this, all right? The boy's complaining. He's frustrated. Our principal's so stupid. The girl says, don't you know who I am? The boy said, no. I'm the principal's daughter. Uh-oh. The boy says, do you know who I am? No. Good. <laughs> boy walks away. I'll see you later. Nice knowing you. Anybody ever been there? I like that. That's good stuff. All right, now this next one may be a little bleak, you know, funerals and whatnot, but I kind of like this. You ever felt like this as a young, young, a young guy? You know, old people at weddings always poke me and say, you're next. So I started doing the same thing to them at their funerals. <laughs> you're next. And I love the look of innocence on his face, right? You're next. Well, we'll see. Before we face our funeral, I hope we can go to our funerals with a life lived in faithfulness to the Lord, in humility, and not in pride. Because pride is a dangerous thing. Pride gets Belshazzar in a lot of trouble in this story. And pride will get you and I in a lot of trouble if we don't, by God's grace, humble ourselves 
and walk in obedience and submission to him. A couple of stories I want to share with you real quickly. There's a story about heavyweight boxer James Quick Tillis. Older guy, I didn't know about this. Anybody know James Quick Tillis? James Quick Tillis, he's a, he's a cowboy from Oklahoma who fought out of Chicago in the early 1980s. And on his first day in the Windy City, after his arrival from Tulsa, he talks about what happened when he got off the bus. He said, I got off the bus with two cardboard suitcases under my arms in downtown Chicago. They dropped me off right in front of the Sears Tower. I put my suitcases down. I looked up at the tower, and I said to myself, I am going to conquer Chicago. When I looked down, my suitcases were gone. <laughs> Dangers of pride, right? I mean, I can, just, I, can, I can feel that. You know, you sit the suitcases down, you look up at this view, I'm going to conquer the world, and oh my goodness, they're gone. Suddenly, Chicago's conquered me, and I hadn't been here for two minutes, right? The dangers of pride. we got another story. Uh, look at this nice car up here. There's the story of a clever salesman who closed hundreds upon hundreds of deals with his last line. You know, in sales, I always emphasize, what is your last line? And this is what he would say. Let me show you something several of your neighbors said that you would never be able to afford. Isn't that interesting? Let me show you something several of your neighbors said you'd never be able to afford. Oh, I can buy it, I can buy it, I can buy it. Hundreds of deals he cemented with that line. Why? I'm going to say because it played into your sense of pride. And Oh, my neighbor said I can't afford it? Well, I'll show them. I'm going to buy it even if I can't afford it. Right? Ah, it doesn't work that way. All right, next slide. So we come, into, we come into the chapter today, and it begins with a party, right? Everybody loves a party, right? It begins with this party. Now, what's going on with the city? As we reflect on it, we know at the end of the chapter, the city's gone. Babylon the Great falls, right? Historical context, there's a lot going on. There's a party, and right now Babylon is under siege. And the real ruler of Babylon, now that Nebuchadnezzar has died, is this guy named Nabonidus. Now, he's actually gone. He's out in Arabia trying to conquer more land. We'll talk about that a little bit uh, more in the future. But, but we've got this guy, Belshazzar, who's ruling in his place. And that's why later on, you know, he'll say, Daniel, if you can interpret this, you'll be the third in the kingdom. Why? Well, because I'm the second. I can't give you the first because the first is my dad, so you'll be the third. But while they're under siege, while they're at war, the king decides he's going to call all of his leaders in. He's going to call all of his wives and concubines in, and they're going to have a party. And they're going to get drunk. And they're going to have a good time. Now, don't have to be a a prophet to tell you that things may go bad if you start doing things like this, living this kind of prideful gluttonous lifestyle and yet that's exactly what he does and so kind of that's the historical context we're going to jump in and I want to emphasize a couple of things as we work our way through chapter 5 first in verses 1 through 12 I think we're going to see the importance of the life-changing realization of God's presence and so my question to you is as you come here this morning have you had this life-changing realization of God's presence. And then in verses 13 through 30, we're going to look at the soul-searching sting of God's judgment. 
After we are aware of His presence, then we're going to feel His judgment. Now, I'm not going to leave you there, but those are the two kind of main headings. And so as we think about this life-changing realization of God's presence, we see Daniel chapters 1 through 12. And we see that our problem is that we enjoy sin. Thus the party, right? Our problem is that we often enjoy sin. And so you see King Belshazzar making this great feast for thousands, and they're drinking the wine, and then what do they do? Next slide. They say, oh, let's get these sacred vessels, the vessels that Nebuchadnezzar, my grandfather, it says father here, but the the way that we understand this, most uh, historians, theologians, uh, they don't really have a term for grandfather back in the Old Testament. It would just be like ancestor, and so that's the way they're using it. But um, many people believe uh, that Belshazzar is actually Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. And so, so... you know, your, your, your grandfather went in, took over Jerusalem, brought in all of these sacred vessels from the temple. And he takes these sacred vessels and he blasphemes. He uses them in this night of revelry, this drunken debauchery. They get drunk, and not only do they get drunk, but I don't know about you, as I was reading it, verse 4 really jumps out to me. They drank wine, and what? Notice what they did. They praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. And I think it's emphasized all the different gods to highlight the, the crass nature of what they're doing. They're taking these vessels that were set apart for the worship and the service of the one true God. And they're using them in very common ways, in very offensive ways. And as they do it, they're giving praise to the gods of stone and wood and iron and all of these things. It's a frightening place to be. So here we are, suddenly we're introduced to this new king, Belshazzar. Who is that? At the end of last week, if you were here, we were again talking about King Nebuchadnezzar. And so in the space between the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, we're fast-forwarding about 30 years. Now in that 30 years, a lot's happened. Nebuchadnezzar has now passed away. He is gone. Now his son took over Nabonidus, but he has left and he is in Arabia right now trying to extend the rule of Babylon. They don't know this. We know it historically, but right now Babylon is being ruled by the last of the Neo-Babylonian dynasty. The rule of Babylon is about to end. He is campaigning in Arabia, he did this for about 10 years. He set up his royal residence in Tiamen. And Belshazzar, his son, is the regent ruling Babylon during this time. Now, where is Daniel? It's interesting. When we left last time, Daniel was pretty high, wasn't he? He was an important historical figure in Babylon. Daniel has been all but forgotten over the course of these last 30 years. He's been all but forgotten. He's fallen evidently into disfavor or ambivalence, and now he is living in Babylon largely as a forgotten man. And I want to pause there just for a minute and say, isn't that interesting? I mean, if you look at the way that that Daniel's life went, first, he was a young boy in Israel, and he was taken captive and carted off into Babylon. All of these trials came, and he was faithful, and he was obedient And because of his faithfulness and obedience, it put him in dangerous territory, but the Lord delivered him through that and raised him up to a position of great power and prominence in a foreign country in Babylon. 
And now, suddenly, with Nebuchadnezzar leaving and Belshazzar coming into power, Daniel's forgotten. He's left abandoned. And I just want to say, it's interesting to think about that as someone who's in the military, right? Depending on where you are in the military, there may be times when you have a a job where you feel very significant and very important. You've got a lot of influence. You've got a boss that loves you and respects you and you just feel empowered to go take over the world. And then there may be times when you don't have a great job and when you don't have a great boss. And it could be the same assignment, all right? I mean, it's amazing how much can change in such a short amount of time. And I think one of the lessons that we have here is that no matter where the Lord puts us, we are to make the best use of the times that He gives us. Sometimes that's working hard for His glory and being recognized. Sometimes that's working hard for His glory and not being recognized. Sometimes that's just taking a a knee, having a period of rest where we catch our breath, where we're able to enjoy the quiet and the peaceful times that the Lord has given us. But I want to help you see... Because with me, I'm always wanting something else, you know. The curse of the grass is always greener on the other side. When I'm in a period of rest, I want to be working harder. And when I'm in a period where I'm working hard, all I want to do is rest. (sighs) There's always something to complain about, right? And yet, I think from this, we see Daniel. Evidently, he has been out of the limelight, and he seems to be perfectly okay with that. He's going to re-engage. And he's going to come back, and the Lord is going to bless and prosper him again in his old age. We come to Daniel now, he's about 80 years old. And yet, we see him tracking with the Lord. We see him submitting obediently to whatever role that the Lord has for him. If he says, look, your role right now is to be in submission to a foreign king in a foreign land as they worship foreign gods. As long as they don't command you to do something God forbids or forbid you to do something God commands, you go along with it. Okay. But then he gives him a period where he says, I'm going to raise you up and you're going to be in charge of all the astrologers and and the uh, Chaldeans and the sorcerers. You're going to be the number one wise man for the king. His number one advisor. The king won't do a single thing without first coming to you and saying, Daniel, what should I do? And Daniel says, okay, I'll do it. And now evidently there's been this period where he's been forgotten. And God says, look, Daniel, I want you to live the next 30 years in obscurity. And Daniel says, okay, Lord, you got it. Whatever it takes and whatever your will is, I will submit. And so may God give us the grace to do that as well. Now, as we see uh, through this drunken revelry, revelry, there's this blatant blasphemous act. That the, again, in these first four verses, the problem is that they are enjoying sin. And our problem is that often we enjoy sin. So my question to you is this. Do you enjoy sin? Yes. If you say no, you're lying. We enjoy sin. If nobody enjoyed sin, we wouldn't do it, Right? There wouldn't be this spiritual warfare. There wouldn't be this struggle. And so we've got to realize our problem is that we enjoy sin. And what we've got to do is in the path to discipleship, as the Lord sends His Spirit into our hearts, and as we're fully convinced of His truth by the Spirit, we've got to begin enjoying God and relationship with God more than sin. And God is gracious to us. God is good to us. What will happen is with His children, as we wander off in our our love of sin, God will intervene. 
And that's exactly what you see God doing right here. Now, often when he intervenes, it's going to hurt. It's going to be shocking. It's going to be offensive. But look at what happens in verses 5 through 9. God intervenes, and I love how verse 5 begins, immediately. Isn't that a powerful word? Having fun, partying, immediately what happens. The fingers of a human hand appeared, and they wrote on this wall. I just want to emphasize this. God intervenes in this amazing way, in this terrifying way for Belshazzar. Notice how Belshazzar is described here. Look at, uh, look at verse 6. The king's color changed. His thoughts alarmed him. I love this. His limbs gave way. His knees knocked together. And then that's emphasized through repetition. Look at verse 9. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. And so you see God intervene, and you see Belshazzar freaking out. What is going to happen? This hand appears on the wall and interrupts the party. And that's what will happen. God will interrupt our parties as we engage in sin. And it's His grace that brings us there. Now, why is Nebuchadnezzar so afraid? Why are his limbs going loose? Why is, uh, why is the color on his face changing? And I think it's because he realizes... As, as he really has this life-changing revelation of God's presence, as he really realizes that there is a God and it's not me, he realizes he's in trouble. He is hopeless and he is helpless. There's, how do you fight against a, just a hand that appears and starts writing on a wall? Right? What is he going to do? How is he going to respond to this? I love how God, when He intervenes, He also intervenes in grace. Look at verse 10. Immediately after He sends the hand, and immediately after it writes on the wall, we see someone introduce the queen. Isn't that interesting? The queen shows up. I like how this... Because of the words of the king and his lords came into the banqueting hall. Now, now where is the queen? If she's coming into the banqueting hall, once she hears all this commotion going on, that means what? That she wasn't there. Isn't that interesting? Now, why isn't the queen there? He's with all his wives and all his concubines and all his leaders and all of his lords, right? Well, a lot of theologians believe that this title is queen as in the queen mother. And that this is his mother. And that this is probably Nebuchadnezzar's widow. Maybe not even his mother's grandmother, if that makes sense. And so, here she is, withdrawn from the festivities... I think, and again, this is maybe me reading a little bit into this, but as we read through it, see if you agree with it, I think she's a Christian. I think that the Lord brought Nebuchadnezzar at the end of his life to faith, and I believe he brought his wife along with him as she saw these amazing works that God did in the life of her husband, Nebuchadnezzar. And then Nebuchadnezzar dies, her grandson takes over, and he leads in a way that doesn't please the Lord. He ostracizes Daniel, and I think she begins to withdraw. She's not going to join in the parties and the festivities of these false and the foreign gods, but she will intervene in them. And notice what she says. I want you to notice the way that she and Daniel speak to Belshazzar. Because it does sound like kind of a, a grandmother talking to you. It's not very respectful. It has the guise of it, but look at what she says. O king, live forever. That's nice. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom and who is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and the wisdom of the gods were in him. And notice how she says this. And King Nebuchadnezzar 
your father, your father, the king, made him chief, etc., etc. Isn't that funny how she kind of emphasizes that? I'm, I'm saying that's a backhanded rebuke. I, the way I read that is she's saying, your father, your father, the king, your father who wasn't just playing king, but your father who was the king, your father who didn't lead in drunken debaucheries and craziness, sensual pleasures, but your father who led according to God's plan and purposes, hopefully in the latter years of his reign. Your father, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers because of his excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this, who? Daniel. Isn't that interesting that she calls him Daniel? Why is that important? Was, yes. Daniel was not his Babylonian name. Daniel was his Hebrew name, and by calling him by his Hebrew name, she is showing that she is familiar with, he, with the Hebrew God. So Daniel, notice how she explains this a little bit, were found in this Daniel whom the king named Belshazzar. So she knows that the king changed his name, and yet she introduces him as Daniel. And then look what happens. Now let who be called? Daniel. Isn't that interesting? She's saying, Daniel, whom the king, your father the king, renamed Belshazzar, now go get him. Why wouldn't she call him Belshazzar at this point? Is she dishonoring the decree of her, her, her husband, the king, Nebuchadnezzar? I think she's calling him Daniel for a very significant reason. She is saying that his identity is Hebrew. That he is the son of the Hebrew God, not the God's of Babylon. And so I love this. And I think it's showing forth that she is a woman of faith. Again, I don't know that, but that's what I'm assuming as we read through this. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. So they call for Daniel. Now I think this is, again, pause just for a second of application. This is so encouraging to me. Because where is Daniel right now? He's forgotten, he's ostracized. In, in the courts, of the king, his name has been forgotten. And yet in the courts of heaven, his name is remembered. And his name will never be forgotten. And I think there's a lesson for us as well. In, in the view of the world, our popularity may rise and fall. But God knows our names. Our names are not forgotten. And as we are His children, and as we walk by faith in the world, we know that He walks with us, that He remembers us, and that we will never be forgotten. Go get Daniel. Now notice how Daniel speaks to the king. Then Daniel was brought forward. Now here we see the soul-searching sting of God's judgment. And notice how the king explains, then Daniel answers the king in verse 17. How does he start off? O king, live forever. O mighty and, and wonderful king. Notice how he begins. Let your gifts be for yourself. He's talking to the king, right? The man who in his power is life or death. And he says, keep your gifts. I don't want them. May your rewards be for someone else. Yet I'll give you the interpretation. And he goes through and he says all, you know, he rehearses everything. And he says, 
God went to great pains, I think, to convert your grandfather and to show his power and to show his glory. And you were aware of all of this. You know this story. And you've turned your back on it. You have willfully walked away from it. You have rejected the truth of the gospel. You knew all of this. Notice what he says in verse 23, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. You have walked in pride and not in humility. And because you are walking in pride, God writes upon that wall, weighed, measured, and found wanting. Now I want to I just encourage you guys on this point really quickly as we bring this to a conclusion. And that is... God is gracious, God is loving, God will respond in grace, but guess what? The decisions we make in life have consequences. And I believe that God will act in judgment at times, even if our eternal destinies are secure with Him. Hear me, we're saved by grace, not works. We are saved by God's grace. It's not our works, it's the works of Jesus Christ on the cross. He lived a life we couldn't live, He died a death we couldn't die, and yet, if I harden my heart against his instruction on alcohol, and I drink a gallon of vodka every day, there's going to be an impact on my liver, right? Our actions have consequences. And there's a frightening consequence here. God comes in judgment. It doesn't say that Belshazzar repents. Notice that. It does say that he honors his word to Daniel. I would have thought he would have thrown him in a lion's den. Oh, but that's already happened. We'll talk about that next week. But he honors his word. God comes in judgment and he says, I'm going to give the kingdom away. And what happened that night before the party's over, before most of our high schoolers got home from the dance, that night he is killed. God claims his life. And Babylon the Great, that great kingdom that had ruled and reigned for 500 plus years, is snuffed out. When God comes in judgment, God comes in judgment. He is patient. He is forbearing. But if we continue to harden our hearts and refuse to submit to Him in humility, then there comes a time when we have to pay for that sin. Galatians chapter 6, verses 6, or excuse me, verses 7 and 8 say, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. God is not mocked. Your sins will find you out. And so, may we come and may we cling to the Lord in grace and in obedience and in humility that we may find grace. It's an amazing contrast, isn't it? The chapter begins with a party and it ends with the death of Belshazzar and the destruction of the Babylonian Empire. For them, literally and figuratively, the party is over. because they did not act in obedience and submission to the Lord.
It's as if he gives him a final opportunity to repent. God comes to him. He sends Daniel the prophet. He's 80 years old. He speaks the word of the Lord. He has this final opportunity to repent. And we do not see repentance. Has the Lord come to you and burdened your heart with repentance? If so, may we remember Scripture's word. Behold, now is the promised time. Now is the day of salvation. Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. And my prayer for you, my prayer for me, is that God will give us the grace not to harden our hearts to His Word. In the summer of 1986, two ships collide in the Black Sea off the coast of Russia. Hundreds of passengers died in the icy waters. An investigation revealed the cause of the accident. It wasn't a technological problem. It wasn't a weather problem. The problem was the pride of man. Each captain was aware of the other ship's presence. Both captains could have steered clear, but but according to the news reports, neither captain wanted to give way to the other. Each captain was too proud to yield first. And by the time they came to their senses, it was too late. The crash was inevitable, and the death of hundreds was upon them. May God protect us from the dangers of of pride. So my question to you in closing is this. If God measured your life right now, what would happen? Would it be weighed, measured, and found wanting? Again, I pray that you're in Christ Jesus. I pray that you've given up on your human efforts and works and have chosen to cling tightly to the cross of Christ because only in Jesus will we be able to meet this, the record, the satisfaction, the requirements for the Lord? Because as God looks down from heaven, if we have embraced Jesus by faith, He doesn't see us. He sees Christ Jesus. And when He sees His Son, and when He sees His life, and when He sees the way that He lived, weighed, measured, and found full. Found full. Are you full in Christ? Have you fled from yourself? Have you repented and humbled yourself and run to Jesus as your only hope and your only salvation? Keep calm because God rules. And may we flee to the cross of Christ for our only hope. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord, we do ask You to be with us this day. And even now as we turn our attention to the Lord's Supper and to celebrating Your work on the cross and the implications and the impact that has for us. I pray that You would make us humble and make us thankful. For we ask it in Jesus' blessed name. Amen and amen.